today we are in Ezekiel again, working our way through the book of Ezekiel, and we're covering Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 17, through to chapter 4, verse 11. And I've called this vain worship and a divided heart. And so it's a bit cryptic, but I'll explain that as we go. So I'll just pray and we'll get into it. Father, thank you for the amazing opportunity we have to worship freely in Australia. Lord, it's a privilege that we should not take for granted because almost every week when we go through the Voice of the Martyrs prayer country, they cannot meet freely in most places and they can't even have a Bible. And so we just thank you for the amazing freedom we have. Help us not to, even though we have so many Bibles and so much access to Bibles, to neglect it, but rather to read it, Lord, and to treasure it. Sometimes the things which are easy to have and easy to receive, we don't often appreciate. So help us to appreciate what we have so freely in Jesus' name. So our memory verse is Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. And why is it the memory verse for the book of Ezekiel? It's the main theme in the book of Ezekiel. It's about the new covenant. It's when God gives us a new heart and a new spirit. And as it says in Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So that's what it's all about. The Christian life is not something we do on our own strength. It's something God does through us. So let's all read Ezekiel 36.26-27 together. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So, last week. We covered Ezekiel 13, 1-16, and we also touched on Jeremiah 23, 14-17, and it's about the false prophets. Now, God was angry with the false prophets because, and I've got some dot points here, they encouraged the people to continue in their sin and therefore not repent and turn back to God. They filled the people with false, empty or futile hopes. They lived an immoral and dishonest life. They caused the land to become corrupt. And by application, we saw that the false prophets today are causing the church to become corrupt. They say to those who despise, ignore, or neglect the word of God that they will have peace, meaning that people are told that they have peace with God or they are saved when in fact they are actually condemned. They are not saved at all. And they say to those who stubbornly follow their own desires that no harm will come your way, that is, You can continue living a life of sin and there won't be any judgment or price to pay. Lastly, they make up everything they say, claiming it is from the Lord. So, this week we continue with the false prophets theme, but this time it's the ladies. He was rebuking the male false prophets, now he's going to rebuke the female false prophetesses. And then, in the second half of the message, We get into chapter 14, and it's about vain worship or empty worship, a divided heart, 
pretending to draw near but having idols in our hearts. So let's jump in. God rebukes the female false prophets or sorcerers or witches. These are quite dark ladies, these ones. So Ezekiel 13, verses 17 to 23. Likewise, son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who prophesy out of their own heart. Prophesy against them and say, Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the women who sew magic charms on their sleeves and make veils for the heads of people of every height to hunt souls. Will you hunt the souls of my people and keep yourselves alive? And will you profane me among my people for handfuls of barley and for pieces of bread, killing people who should not die? and keeping people alive who should not live by your lying to my people who listen to lies? Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against your magic charms by which you hunt souls there like birds. I will tear them from your arms and let the souls go, the souls you hunt like birds. I will also tear off your veils and deliver my people out of your hand, and they shall no longer be as prey in your hand. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Because with lies you have made the heart of the righteous sad, whom I have not made sad, and you have strengthened the hands of the wicked, so that he does not turn from his wicked way to save his life. Therefore you shall no longer envision futility nor practice divination, for I will deliver my people out of your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So, we'll start in verse 17. It says, Likewise, Son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who prophesy out of their own heart. Prophesy against them. So, as I was saying before, he's now speaking to the female false prophetesses. Now, it's interesting. Is it biblical for a lady to be a prophetess? Well, let's go through a bit of a history of the nation of Israel and the church. And I've got a quote from Feinberg. He says, Women held a higher place in Israel than among most other nations. While there were no priestesses in Israel, the nation knew the prophetic ministry of women. So, some of the true prophets, the good prophets that were women, include Miriam, the sister of Moses, Deborah, Holder, the wife of Isaiah, and Noedia. She was a false prophetess in Nehemiah. Anna, the daughter of Phenanuel, and the four daughters of Philip in Acts 21 verse 9. Now, Ezekiel never actually calls these ladies false prophetesses. He doesn't use the word, the Hebrew word, Nebia, for prophetess to describe these. He just says the girls who call themselves prophetesses. He says, the daughters of your people who prophesy out of their own heart. And I quote from David Guzik, on that phrase, who prophesy out of their own heart. One basic failing of the female false prophets was the same as the false prophets in general. They spoke out of their own heart, not from God and his word. It is common for people to trust their own hearts instead of God's revelation. So, prophecy must come from God and not from our own ideas, interpretations, or whims and fancies, what we want to happen. Verse 18, 
Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the women who sew magic charms on their sleeves and make veils for the heads of people of every height to hunt souls. Will you hunt the souls of my people and keep yourselves alive? So, this is different to the men. I'm not sure why, but it's just the way it was. Why were these female prophets like witches, I suppose? They were using magic and sorcery to make a living for themselves. They were casting spells and curses for money. And maybe also conducting seances and, you know, fortune-telling, that kind of stuff. So, a quote from Taylor, Ezekiel's language suggests that these were more like witches or sorceresses who practiced strange magic arts. And you can see 1 Samuel 28, 7, where Saul goes to a medium for a seance. Another quote, In Babylonia, Jewish women were selling charms and spells. They were ready to do anything for even a small reward putting a curse on the innocent and promising a long and safe life for wrongdoers. So that's basically what they were doing. So he's got a good summary there. Verse 18, will you hunt the souls of my people? So for me, this is a warning from God. I don't like the tone of his voice here. If I was a false prophetess, (laughs) will you hunt the souls of my people? My people? So yes, there is real power in the demonic realm. And those who use it for their own gain will face severe judgment. But you know what? What's happening today is what's happening back then. There's nothing new under the sun. It goes on. The new age, religion, Hinduism, Buddhism, transcendental meditation, yoga, animism, with its witch doctors and totems and Satanism, and wicker witches, wizards, and even some forms of martial arts. They all tap into the occult or the mnemonic realm. So, stay away from that. Now, what does it mean when it says to hunt souls? Well, basically in the way the Hebrew thinking works, it means the person. So, if a soul dies, like in Ezekiel it says, the soul who sins shall die, right? It means the person dies. So, it's not talking just about the invisible soul, but it's talking about the whole person. And verse 19, Will you profane me among my people for handfuls of barley and for pieces of bread? So it could be that the phrase, keep yourselves alive, refers to them making a living through their false words, ceremonies and actions, like they get paid food, you know, bits of bread and, and barley. But there's another understanding, another possible understanding or interpretation. Alexander says, Barley and bread were also instruments of sorcery. Some have understood the bread and barley to represent the cheap payment these prophetesses would accept in return for their occult practices, but Hittite practices and later Syrian rituals demonstrate that divination was carried out with barley bread, either as part of the pagan sacrificial ritual or as a means of determining whether the victim would live or die. So... It could be that that was part of their ceremony. Now, the application, don't be deceived. In verse 19, it says they are profaning me. You know, profane me. They're profaning God. These women, like the men, carried out the deceitful, but also their cultic practices in God's name, in the name of the Lord. Now, it's strange that you think people would try and do that, but it still happens today. And a quote from Block, with their sorceress 
invocation of the divine name, the women have degraded Yahweh in the public's eyes to the level of the Babylonian deities and demons who let themselves be manipulated by divination and witchcraft. Now, I'm going to read a scripture from 2 Corinthians 11, 12-15. And this explains why there are people who speak in the name of the Lord, but they're speaking in lies. The source of this false prophecy. 2 Corinthians 11, 12-15. But what I do, this is Paul speaking, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. So, talking about wanting to be regarded as an apostle, like Paul was an apostle. Verse 13, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. So, Satan transforms himself into a minister of righteousness. So, it's not that he's ministering righteousness, but he's pretending to be a minister of righteousness and telling lies. 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. So, it's not just in the latter times. I think it's going to get more common and more prevalent in the latter times, as it is. We are living in the last days. But, you know, Satan has been deceiving people through his demonic ministers ever since the Tower of Babel. You know, Nimrod was one of the early leaders of the, the world religion back then, until God scattered them. And he would have, I guess, I'm imagining, been speaking as in, this is what God wants. But speaking lies. And what's it going to be like in the tribulation? Well, Revelation 9, 20-21. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone and wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries, and it's witchcraft and drugs, or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So Satan is using the demonic, the occult, more and more to influence the church, to put false teaching into the church, to deceive people with doctrines of demons. And Jesus says in Matthew twelve thirty from the NLT, anyone who isn't with me opposes me, and anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. So, basically, no matter how nice the preacher may sound, how kind he may come across to be, if he's not teaching salvation by repentance and faith, he's working for Satan. He is a liar and deceiver, pretending to be a minister of righteousness. So, if he's not teaching the true gospel, he is a fake minister of righteousness. He's pretending. Now, verse 19, it says, 
by your lying to my people who listen to lies. So, a quote from David Guzik, the false prophetesses were guilty of lying to God's own people, yet the people were guilty because they did listen to lies. If none of God's people listened to false prophets, there will be much fewer of them. So you see the double blame here. There's a double guilt. The guilt of the false prophet telling the lies, but also the guilt of the people who want to listen to the lies. No one's forcing them to listen to the lies, right? Another quote from Alexander. They had used deceptive and counterfeit means to dishearten the righteous, pulling them into their cultic snare and influence. At the same time, they encouraged the wicked to disobey God's ways. So that's part of the lie. They're causing people to turn away from God and not submit to God. So I believe that this exhortation and warning that Paul gives us has never been more applicable than in today's church, being in the last days. You know, the latest thing in church age in which we live, I call it the church of the itching ears. That's my new name for it in the last couple of weeks. There's so many people who live to have their itch scratched. Okay, They live to have their itch scratched. They want to be told what they want to hear. And a verse that kind of describes this is 2 Timothy 4, 1-5 from the Amplified Version. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by or in the light of his coming and his kingdom, herald and preach the word. Keep your sense of urgency. Stand by, be at hand and ready. Whether the opportunity seems to be favorable or unfavorable, whether it is convenient or inconvenient, whether it is welcome or unwelcome, you as preacher of the word are to show people in what way their lives are wrong. You see that? You as a preacher of the word are to show people in what way their lives are wrong. You are to encourage repentance and convince them, rebuking and correcting, warning and urging and encouraging them, being unflagging and inexhaustible in patience and teaching. Why this big thing about being faithful to show people using the word where they're going wrong? Well, For the time is coming when people will not tolerate or endure sound and wholesome instruction, but having itching ears for something pleasing and gratifying, they will gather to themselves one teacher after another to a considerable number chosen to satisfy their own liking and to foster the errors they hold, and will turn aside from hearing the truth and wander off into myths and man-made fictions. So, notice some of the wording here. They will gather to themselves one teacher after another to a considerable number chosen to satisfy their own liking and to foster the errors they hold. See, the blame is not just in the false prophet, the false teacher, but also the people who are encouraging them to tell these lies. God gives us free choice. God allows the lies, and you might ask that question, why does God allow these false prophets anyway? Well, God allows the lies because he won't force people to listen to the truth. People have to make their own mind up. Ever since the Garden of Eden, God has given mankind free choice to choose him or reject him. And, if you take this in the context of what we're talking about today, listening to lies is rejecting God. So be careful who you listen to. 
It's quite serious. If you choose to listen to the lies, you are actually rejecting the truth. And as we'll find out later today, both the false prophet and the person who listens to the false prophet will share the same judgment. So we move on to verses 20 and 21 in chapter 13. God is against the magic charms of the female false prophetesses. So let's read those two verses. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against your magic charms by which you hunt souls. They are like birds. I will tear them from your arms and let the souls go, the souls you hunt like birds. I will also tear off your veils and deliver my people out of your hand, and they shall no longer be as prey in your hand. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So all this magic stuff, right? I'm against your magic charms of which you hunt souls. Casting spells on people, all that kind of stuff. So the false prophetesses are using magic charms as ceremonies to hunt or pursue vulnerable people. And a quote from Vorta and Hoppy. The women who made use of them were not for this prophet, carnival gypsies whom one frequents for amusement. They were practitioners of the dark arts. Verse 21 says, I will tear them from your arms and let the souls go. So God here promises to judge the false prophetesses and to rescue the people, or the souls, from the evil spells and the incantations. And 21, it says, Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So God keeps saying this, doesn't he? Why? Because once it comes to pass, you can look back. God said that was going to happen. It happened. God is in control. It proves that God is who he says he is. That he's outside of time. He knows all things. He's sovereign over all things. Now, we come to verses 22 and 23 in chapter 13. And this highlights two very negative effects of the lies of the false prophets. And this is both the males and the females. It says this, Because with lies you have made the heart of the righteous sad, whom I have not made sad, and you have strengthened the hands of the wicked, so that he does not turn from his wicked way to save his life. Therefore you shall no longer envision futility, nor practice divination, for I will deliver my people out of your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So these two negative effects are happening even today. So the first one is, because with lies you have made the heart of the righteous sad, whom I have not made sad. So the hearts of the righteous were made sad by the lies of the false prophets spoken in the name of the Lord. How many people do you know, I know a few, who have been burned by false doctrine, false promises, false hopes, false expectations, bad experience, or just neglect? You know, How many people are missing out on fellowship? They refuse to go to church. They're missing out on the joy of fellowship that results from the communion of the saints. They are coals gone cold. They've left the fire. And many of these people remain bitter, disillusioned, and angry and frustrated with the church or, and this is really sad, with God. So, if you know any believers like this, I would encourage you to reach out to them and help them to find a church that teaches the word of God expositionally. That's verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And encourage them to read their Bibles to see if what they are being taught lines up with Scripture, Acts 17 and 11. And if it doesn't line up with Scripture, then leave. 
There's no point in getting burned or hurt or deceived yet again. Now, the second negative effect of false teaching is this. You have strengthened the hands of the wicked so that he does not turn from his wicked way to save his life, in verse 22. So, the false prophets and prophetesses convince many unbelievers that they could continue living for themselves without fear of judgment. And, you know, the word repent would be like a dirty word for a lot of these teachers and a lot of these congregations. Repent? Why? I'm a good person. Why should I need to repent? God loves me just the way I am. Yes, but is he going to accept you in heaven like that? I don't think so. You need to repent. You need to be willing to change. So this is not that the people are doing anything, well, they may not be doing anything particularly evil, but their focus is on themselves and they're seeking their own pleasure and well-being. So there's no calling people to repent or count the cost of becoming a disciple of Christ. Instead, their message, you know, back then as it is now, would be similar to one which I've heard quite a lot by one of today's false teachers. God just wants you to feel good about yourself. You know, don't have to repent. You're okay. 99.9% of people are good people. So, in other words, God accepts you as you are. You don't and won't need to change or repent. So, while it's true that God does love us as we are, he does not accept us as we are. We need to accept Christ's forgiveness and choose to change, to repent. So, verse 23. Therefore you shall no longer envision futility nor practice divination, for I will deliver my people out of your hand. Now, quote from David Guzik. God promised to put an end to the false prophets. Their visions were futility and their ceremonies were not worship but divination. God promised to deliver his people from their deceptions. So that's interesting, isn't it? That line there, their visions were futility and their ceremonies were not worship but divination. So when these false prophets are talking, who's talking again? It's the demonically inspired false ministers of righteousness, right? And it's actually like a ceremony. If you want to apply what we're learning about now in Ezekiel's time to modern day false teaching, when they're telling people not to repent and they're making people sad and using them and all that kind of stuff, getting their money off them and making them work for nothing, basically. This is not worship. It's divination. So, Feinberg says, What is unmistakable is that they degraded the name of the Lord by linking it with superstitions and magical practices. So a little warning here. If you look at the false teachings swirling around the church, especially in the emergent church and the various cults, and many of the teachings are taken directly from the New Age and other religions. So be careful that you are not deceived. And this is what they do. They use the same words. It's called an equivocation, or they are equivocating. And the dictionary meaning is to use ambiguous language so as to conceal the truth or avoid committing oneself. So that's what they purposefully do. They use ambiguous language 
so as to conceal the truth or avoid committing oneself. So they basically don't mean what they say. And initially they will sell you something that sounds very close to the truth, very close to true Christianity. But slowly, gradually, as you get hooked into and dependent upon their organization, they will start to reveal to you what they really mean by the spiritual jargon they use, and you will be slowly led away from the truth into lies by the seemingly sound teaching and logic. So, remember that the most dangerous lie is the one that is closest to the truth. Why? Because it's the hardest one to discern. It's harder to pick something that's really close to the truth, but is still a lie. So, one brand of rat poison, for example, is only 0.005% poison, yet it kills the rats with a single feed. Doesn't take much, does it? So, it just takes a little lie to cause someone to go off the track or not to be saved. Now, we move into chapter 14. And I've called this vain worship, a divided heart, pretending to draw near but having idols in our hearts. So a bit of background on this. A quote from John Corson first. A group of elders came to Ezekiel, seemingly to get counsel from the Lord, but the Lord said that they were playing games because they were still heavily involved in idolatry. And a quote from Jesus in Matthew 6.21. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. We'll get into that as we go through. So the main message we get from this section of scripture is that we can fool ourselves into thinking that we are genuinely seeking God and wanting to obey him when our true or primary affections actually lie elsewhere. Okay, so now we've moved from false prophets and then moving to what's going on in my heart. We can easily fail to guard our hearts. I'm going to be talking about that throughout this next section, about guarding our hearts, Proverbs 4.23. It's easy if we don't guard our hearts to grow to love someone or something more than God. And remember, an idol by definition is something that is more important to us than God. And we then only end up giving God our second best. The leftovers of our time, commitment, energy, resources, money and affections. Whatever we haven't first spent on our true first love. And so there can be many seconds in our lives, but only one first. All of us have something that we prioritize above everything else. And if it's God, it's awesome, we'll be blessed. But if not... God will not reveal himself to us if we are not seeking him with our whole heart. That means sincerely or honestly. So let's read this passage and it's quite revealing. This is not something that just happened in Ezekiel's day. This is something that happens in our day and it's happened in my heart and I guess it could happen in your hearts too. Ezekiel 14, 1-11 Now some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me and the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Everyone of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart 
and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity, into sin. And then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him who comes, according to the multitude of his idols, that I might seize the house of Israel by their heart, because they are all estranged from me by their idols. So you see the picture here? God wants our hearts. It's not just going through the motions, yeah? Where is your heart? Verse 6, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent, turn away from your idols, and turn your faces away from all your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who dwell in Israel, who separates himself from me, that's what we're doing, isn't it? We're separating ourselves from God, and sets up his idols in his heart, and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity, then comes to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me, I, the Lord, will answer him by myself. I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb. I will cut him off from the midst of my people. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. In verse 9, And if the prophet, and the context here is now the false prophet, and if the false prophet is induced to speak anything, I, the Lord, have induced that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from my people Israel, and they shall bear their iniquity. The punishment of the prophet should be the same as the punishment of the one who inquired that the house of Israel may no longer stray from me, nor be profaned any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people and I may be their God. That's really important. That's God's desire. But that they may be my people and I may be their God, says the Lord God. So, Verses 1 to 3 is God revealing the divided or idolatrous hearts of the Israelite leaders in exile in Babylon. So let's read those verses. Now some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? So in verse 1, These elders are the ones who visited Ezekiel previously in chapter 8, verse 1. They are the leaders of the Israelite community in exile and mainly living in Babylon. And a quote from Taylor, They had come presumably in the hope of hearing some oracle or some prophecy about the length of their exile or giving news of affairs at home in Jerusalem. The oracle was given, but it was not what they expected. And a quote from McGee. They pretend they want to listen to the prophet. It is like coming to church with a big Bible under your arm, pretending that you want to serve the Lord. You know, if they used to come with a big King James under their arm, used to try and look spiritual by having a big Bible. And verses 2 and 3. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts. So God gives Ezekiel supernatural wisdom to know what was going on in their hearts. And in the New Testament, we might call this the gift of knowledge, or the, the word of knowledge. It's a spiritual gift, for 1 Corinthians 12.8. So even though their idols were not outward, they were still just as guilty as the other idol worshippers condemned earlier on in the book. So, verse 3, it also says, and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. So, 
their secret idols, their secret priorities, their secret things that they're really wanting, are causing them to stumble into iniquity. So their secret idols, the unconfessed sin, is the main reason that they are continuing to sin. Does that make sense? So I'll read that bit again in verse 3. And put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. They're stumbling into it. The unconfessed sin, the secret sin, the things that we don't want people to know about, are going to keep us from being able to fully obey Christ. So, as we were going through in James a few months ago, you know, confess your sins one to another, you may be healed. The secret to overcoming sin is to have no hidden sin. That's a first step. So, application. A hidden idol will cause us to fail in the other areas of our lives. So, a bit of testimony here. I know from experience that in my own life, my heart can be seeking some pleasure or other goal instead of Christ, ahead of Christ. But the outward routine of my life doesn't change. I'm still reading my Bible, I'm still going to church, I'm still going to work. And it's almost impossible for others to see that I have new priorities, that I'm not actually living for God anymore, that my heart is not in it. Rather, I'm living for myself. There's something I want which is more important than God. Now, common idols of the heart include desires for a spouse, desires to be single again, or to have a better spouse, you know, financial security, a comfortable life, to be accepted, loved, and admired by those around us, various addictions and sporting and career goals. But God knows where my true affections lie, and while I choose to be controlled by my sinful nature, I will not be able to please God and I'll be out of fellowship with God. And you can see Romans 8, 5-7. Also, Isaiah 59 verse 2 helps us here. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. So, while my heart is divided, even if I am still reading my Bible, even if I am still going to church and Bible study and you know, praying and whatever, if my heart is divided, if I have this hidden idol, this hidden priority, something's more important than God, I will experience emptiness or a feeling of distance or separation from God. And I will most likely struggle with some form of habitual sin. It could be lust or TV or unforgiveness, Facebook, social media, substance abuse. And basically, because the Holy Spirit will not be enabling me to overcome. Why? Because I'm grieving Him. I'm not allowing Him to be Lord of my life. I said, no, I don't want to do what God wants. I want to do what I want, first and foremost. And verse 3, God says, should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? No, it's being a hypocrite. So, for these elders who are coming to see Ezekiel, I'm guessing they make it applicable to us. Their morning Bible studies would have been dry. Their prayer life would have lacked fervency. And God is under no obligation to speak or reveal himself to those who harbor secret sin. And I've got some quotes here because this is an important point and there's a lot of wisdom here from other people. So listen carefully. The word of the Lord revealed to him that whatever their outward attitude might be, they were at heart idolaters. 
And he was charged to declare to them that while idolatry remained in their heart, they were necessarily estranged from Jehovah. And that's from Morgan. So that last line there, that while idolatry remained in their heart, they were necessarily estranged or separated from Jehovah. Another one from Taylor. The charge against them is that they have been infected by the Babylonian environment and the attractions of its idolatrous religion. Nothing had changed outwardly in their allegiance to the Lord, but they had taken idols into their hearts. So that's another important point. Nothing's changed on the outside, right? But their heart has changed. Wiersbe says, They were like the people in Isaiah's day who drew near to God with words, but not with their hearts, Isaiah 29.13. Jesus said that the Pharisees in his day were guilty of the same sin, Matthew 15.8-9. And David Guzik, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, and the rich young ruler, Matthew 19, are New Testament examples of those who looked spiritual on the outside, but had idols in their hearts. No wonder John closed his first letter, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. 1 John 5.21 A really important one here from Alexander. This verse is important for those who come to Scripture seeking guidance. No true direction can be given to those who have erected idols in their hearts. Think about that. You go to the Scripture for guidance, you're praying, God, what do I do? You know, job opportunities, whatever it might be. If you've got an idol in your heart, what does God say? Should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? And the answer is no. One last quote. Can these men seriously consult me? Is it fit I should give counsel to obstinate resolved sinners who come to inquire but will not hearken? Should I help them in their distress who depend on idols which I hate? So i read that again. It's awesome. Can these men seriously consult me? Is it fit I should give counsel to obstinate resolved sinners who come to inquire but will not hearken, they will not listen, they will not obey? Should I help them in their distress who depend on idols which I hate? And that's from Paul. Now, let's go to verses 4 and 5. God's response to those who seek her idols. It says, Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Everyone of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble, it keeps repeating that phrase, doesn't it? And puts before him what causes him to stumble. And then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him who comes according to the multitude of his idols, that I may seize the house of Israel by their heart, because they are all estranged from me by their idols. So God doesn't want people to go through the motions. He wants a genuine relationship, us to love him with our whole heart. Verse 4 says, I, the Lord, will answer him who comes according to the multitude of his idols. So yes, God will answer them, but it's not going to be what they're expecting. It's going to be a message of judgment. It's according to the multitude of his idols. Hey, you're coming to me. You've got sin in your life. And verse 5, that I may seize or capture the house of Israel by their heart. And this is why God removes 
idols from us. He disciplines us by removing the idols from us, that our heart or affections may be turned back to him. So God wants all of us, the best of everything we are and have, not just the leftovers, not just the second best. In verse 5 it says, Because they are all estranged or separated from me by their idols. And here we come back to that verse in Proverbs about guarding your heart. Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of its flow the wellsprings of life. We need to be so careful to guard our hearts because it's so easy for an idol to steal our affections or our love from God. It's like an unfaithful spouse giving their heart to another. It's not like they did it intentionally. Marriages don't split um, because one person wakes up one day and says, I want to not love my husband or wife. I want to start loving someone else and go and find someone else to start loving. No, it just happens because they're not guarding their hearts. We need to understand that without conscious effort and discernment, just like a spouse's heart can easily and unintentionally be given away to a stranger, so can an idol steal our affections from God. If I don't guard my heart, my affections, and consciously seek to keep my relationship with God as number one, then it won't be. Relationships require work, commitment, and we know that, but they also must be protected. Anything that starts to come in, anything that starts to become an idol, something that becomes more important than God, a higher priority than God, we must get rid of it. We must bring it down to its proper place. Now, verse 6, God's message to those with idols in their hearts. What do you think he's going to say to them? Verse 6, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Repent, turn away from your idols, and turn your faces away from all your abominations. So, if you're coming to him and you've got an idol in your heart, there's only one answer you're going to get. Repent, turn away from your idols, and turn your faces away from your abominations. When you do that, you get more revelation. Until you do that, that's all you're going to get. It's the only cure or answer for our separation or broken relationship or fellowship with God. Now, verses 7 and 8. God's warning of judgment to those who are hypocrites, who have ears but are not willing to hear, who have hard hearts. So read verses 7 and 8. For anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell in Israel who separates himself from me and sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity. That's about the fourth time he said that, right? Keeps repeating that phrase, yeah? You set up an idol in your heart, it's going to cause you to stumble into iniquity, right? And then comes to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me. I, the Lord, will answer him by myself. I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb, and I will cut him off from the midst of my people. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So, although our drifting and compromising heart may not have been intentional or deliberate, and as an example, I don't wake up one morning and declare, I'm going to separate myself from God today, and I'm going to choose to love something more than God. Do we do that? Of course not. But when it does happen, I'm still responsible for it because I have been negligent. I have not guarded my heart. I have not been faithful to protect my relationship with God from intruders. So this includes prevention and eradication. Sometimes we can't help but 
you know, things might become important. Our job might become really demanding and we might get really kind of sucked into doing that and start without realizing it to put too much of ourselves into that. And we realize, hang on a second, this is becoming a higher priority than God. I'm starting to, you know, not think about God so much. Okay, eradicate that and bring it back to where it should be. But other things we can prevent. If you know there's something that's going to cause you to turn from the Lord, don't do it. What's good for one person might not be good for you. If something's going to cause you to turn from the Lord, don't do it. It doesn't matter if other people can. It's your relationship with God that counts. And verse 7. Then comes to prophet to inquire of him concerning me. So, you know, a lot of people who call themselves Christians live for themselves and yet expect to hear from God on Sunday when they come to church. Or they read their Bible in the morning and then put it away and live as though they never read it. You know, God's not going to speak to people like that. If I'm like that, he's not going to speak to me. And sometimes I am. Sometimes we can get a bit like that. We can live for ourselves. We can think, oh, I want to do this and I want to do that. And we take our focus off God and it's on ourselves. And we still expect to hear from God? No. We've set up an idol in our hearts. Verse 8, I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb. So the punishment described here against the double-hearted or double-minded man is that God would oppose him and they will become known for their foolishness. Verses 9 to 11, God promised judgment of the false prophets and their listeners. So now we go back to the false prophets. So leaving behind this section where it's talking about secret idols and stumbling into iniquity, now we're going back to the false prophets. Verses 9 to 11, and if the false prophet is induced to speak anything, I, the Lord, have induced that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people Israel. And they shall bear their iniquity. The punishment of the prophet shall be the same as the punishment of the one who inquired, that the house of Israel may no longer stray from me, nor be profaned any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people and I may be their God, says the Lord. This is an eye-opener for me. Uh, it's an amazing description of how God judges those with divided hearts, meaning the false or insincere seekers, along with the false prophets and false prophetesses. So if the false seeker goes to a false prophet who wants to tell the false seeker what they want to hear, because remember, the false prophets like scratching, and the people who come to them who come to inquire, they like to be itched. So they work well together. If the false seeker goes to a false prophet who wants to tell the false seeker what they want to hear, God will actually induce the false prophet to say just that, what they want to hear. Now what this means is that God will strengthen both the false seeker and the false prophet in their deception. You've heard the old saying, there's nothing worse than God giving us what we want when it's not according to his will. If they really, really want that and they're ignoring the truth, they're ignoring the truth, God will allow them to be deceived, is what they wanted. 
It's like God is saying, if it's deception you want, it's deception you'll get. I'm going to let you experience the painful natural consequences of your sin. In verse 9 it says, I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people Israel. So God's ultimate punishment or response or judgment against a false prophet is to destroy him. Even if God used a false prophet to give the idolater the deception they long for, you know, God just wants you to feel good about yourself and all those kinds of false teachers, false teaching. God will still judge the false prophet. In verse 10, the punishment of the prophet shall be the same as the punishment of the one who inquired. And again, as we talked about before, there would be very few false prophets if nobody listened to them and supported them. The only reason there are so many false prophets is because there are so many people wanting to be deceived, to have the itch scratched. And a quote from Trapp, Neither shall excuse the other, but as they have sinned together, so they shall suffer together. And verse 11, That the house of Israel may no longer stray from me, nor be profaned any more, but that they may be my people, and I may be their God. So God has always been in the business of reconciling his people to himself. And we sung that today, 2 Corinthians 5, 18-21. And here is no different. This is God's heart. So I'm just going to read a quote from Block. It says, Yahweh's desire is for a people who will never stray from him again. The word stray derives from the realm of animal husbandry, but is also applied to persons who are lost. So think of the parables where Jesus talks about the lost sheep. The sheep has strayed away. God doesn't want us to stray away from him. He wants to bring us back to himself. Now, summary and conclusion. God is seeking a relationship, or God is seeking relationship with people. That's what God wants. That's what he's all about. God, in all this judgment in the book of Ezekiel, what's his purpose? He's seeking restored fellowship with his people. That's the big picture. So God is dealing honestly and directly with the sins of the people. And he's making it clear that yes, there are consequences to your sin, that we are responsible both for falling away from God and for repenting so we can come back to God. However, God goes to great lengths to lead us to repentance. He does a lot in the background to encourage us to come to repentance. Now, I was thinking about it and I thought about the prodigal son. You know the parable of the prodigal son? Where the son goes to his father and says, hey dad, give me half of your inheritance and takes off and spends it all on wine and ladies and, you know, and then finds himself in the pig pen and he goes, what am I doing here, starving to death? And then he comes to his senses and he goes back home and he says, you know, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. And the father runs to meet him and embraces him and gives him full rights of sonship again. So, Israel, What did Israel do? God gave them his word. God gave them the land. God gave them the temple. They got all these blessings. They said, God, give it to me, and they spent it on themselves. They wasted it. Then, like the prodigal son, they soon find themselves in dire straits. The people in Jerusalem, literally, 
starving to death. But what is God doing? He's calling them back. He's watching. He's waiting like the father and the prodigal son parable. He's waiting, looking the distance. When are you going to come back? And as soon as I start coming back, he runs to meet them. And that's what it means here. That they may be my people and I may be their God. That's his desire for us today. He wants us to be his people so he can be our God. So if you don't get anything else from today's message, just remember that God's heart is to have a relationship with you. So maybe there are some today who have set up idols in their hearts. We may not be wasting what God has given us in wild living, but our hearts are still elsewhere. We know we are insincere, double-minded, unstable in all our ways, like it says in James. As we struggle with some sin or desire, something that we just can't seem to conquer day after day, week after week, you know, month after month, year after year, the answer is clear and simple. You need to be humble. You need to repent. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up, James 4.10. So trust him, commit your heart to him as a wise and loving saviour and then guard your heart so you keep yourself in the love of God. Strive to never again let anything steal away your affections from your relationship with God. Father, I thank you for these very pertinent verses that we've studied today. Lord, I pray that you will help us to reflect on these, to ask ourselves, or more to the point, ask you to show us if there's anything in us that shouldn't be there. If there's any idols, if there's anything in our hearts that shouldn't be there, cause us to seek you with our whole heart, Lord, to confess our sins one to another so there won't be any secret idols. We won't be still struggling with sin because we would have confessed and brought it out into the light and we can be healed. Confess your sins one to another and you will be healed. It's a promise. Lord, thank you for the body of believers here where we can be honest with each other, we can share our secret idols, we can share our faults, we can share the things that we're struggling with. And Lord, we can be healed, we can encourage each other to seek you with our whole heart and to get back on track. So I just pray that Lord, you will guide our conversations when we finish the service and Lord, we can just if we need to, find people to talk to and pray with and we can be real and we can be open and honest about something we might be struggling with and no longer have to hide what we're really thinking, what we really want and no longer have to struggle with habitual sin. So we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.